ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. Allow me to introduce William Chafe, and he is the author of Bill and Hillary, The Politics of the Personal. And uh, William, I just have to tell you that uh, it, it was such an interesting thing for me to go through the list of authors here at the Miami Book Fair and to decide who I was going to interview. Mm-hmm because uh, I am a staunch conservative, but a real advocate of women and and women's rights. But I have had this lifelong uh, fascination, like many have, uh, with Bill and Hillary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually met Bill Clinton when I was 12, when he was governor. And, and so, you know, he just has, has had just an interesting place. And then as I've watched Hillary, which, uh, you know, I'm hoping we can talk uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit about this, that, that actually the title of your book, Bill and Hillary, by himself, you know, Bill, Bill doesn't have the same distinction, but with her name yes. attached, yes. it all of a sudden transforms. So tell us a little bit about yourself. About myself? Yes. Well, I grew up uh, in a working class neighborhood in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to say that I'm third generation Harvard. Um, my grandfather was a night watchman at Harvard. My uh. grandmother was a cafeteria worker at Harvard. <laughs> my f- uncle was a policeman at Harvard. My mother was a secretary at Harvard, and I was a student at Harvard. Oh, so I'm third generation cool. Harvard. Uh, I grew up uh, in some ways with some of the same background that uh, Hillary had, especially. Mm-hmm. I was very active in my youth fellowship uh, and believed very strongly in. Uh, the social gospel. I was very early on in, in interested and involved with issues of uh, racial equality um, right. and uh, and then gender equality, uh, particularly gender equality. Uh, my mother died when I was 18, and I always felt as though she'd not been given a fair chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in addition to working on issues of civil rights, I very early on decided that I wanted to do something with women's rights. And so, I wrote my dissertation at Columbia. Uh, which became my first book on the history of American women in the 20th century after oh, suffrage. Wow. And it was one of the first books uh, in the 1970s uh, to deal with uh, women's history. Mm-hmm. And, I was, uh, and I wrote four books on women's history, and uh, I was in many ways the beneficiary of a tremendous group of women, uh, primarily women, who were historians, but they made me very much a welcome part of their community. And then I continued my work in civil rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a book on the sit-in movement, and how it transformed America, starting in 1960. Uh, and then from there, began to focus much more on how individuals change history and how the private lives of individuals uh, shape the decisions they make. Right. Uh, and that eventually brought me to uh, writing a book about called Private Lives, Public Consequences, uh, which was a series of eight essays that started with one of Franklin and Eleanor, ended with uh, Bill and Hillary. Uh, and it, at that point, I had done a lot of research on Franklin and Eleanor. I had not done that much on Bill and Hillary. And I decided this was a couple, the story of whom was so rich right. that uh, one really needed to write a book not about either one of them alone, but about the chemistry between the two of them together because that's what really shaped their personal and their political lives. So that's how the book came to be. Very interesting. So what do you make of this fascination that people have with the two of them? Well, I think it's totally natural mm-hmm. because they are as dramatic and 
distinctive and powerful a set of individuals as you're ever going to find. But the most amazing thing is that as, as extraordinary as each of them is individually, they would not be who they are if they were not a couple, if they were not together. You know, there's a, there's a story about Hillary. Um, she's in Yale Law School. She's working on George McGovern's presidential campaign uh, in 1972, and she's rooming with a woman named Betsy Wright in Texas. Betsy Wright becomes a really pivotal figure in her life. Betsy Wright says, you know, you are so talented. You are one of the first feminists who I can imagine being able to go off on a public career, a trajectory that will carry you to the White House as the first woman president. And she really believes that, and mm -hmm. she tries to persuade Hillary of that. Hillary believes she can do that. Right. But we have to put ourselves back in 1972, 73, 74, when there are very few women who have an open door to that kind of career path. Mm -hmm. And she's fallen in love with this charismatic, extraordinary, uh, colorful, uh, and brilliant young lawyer, uh, a lawyer-to-be at Yale Law School, and she knows what she's getting in for because she's, she knows already that he's a philanderer, right. that he's not going to be trustworthy on that score. But she also knows how talented he is. And she makes the conclusion, calculated decision, that they can actually do more to transform the world together mm -hmm. than they could either by himself or herself. And so she takes the risk. They love each other. They believe in each other. And from that point forward, really, it is really a case of their needing each other all the way and their personal chemistry determining what they're able to achieve and right. not achieve. Right. Bill Clinton would never, ever have become president of the United States without Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton would not have been able to do all the things that she's done without Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And so the dynamics of that relationship become incredibly powerful. Right. Well, let's back up a little bit. So sure. you, you spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about the early years for both uh, Bill and Hillary. Mm -hmm. um, what could you uh, distill down as the characterization of those early years of, of what caused those dynamics, explosive or otherwise, mm -hmm. when they came together? Well, Bill grows up in a strange, strange household. He loves his grandfather. His grandmother is autocratic. His mother has the same problem with her parents. Uh, she loves her father, doesn't like her mother. Um, goes off, from the beginning tries to look on the bright side of things. She says in her autobiography, Virginia Clinton says, that she spends 90 minutes each morning putting makeup on. 90 minutes. And she says the reason why is because she wants people never to be able to see who she really is. Okay? She goes off, uh, meets a guy, she's always looking on the bright side of things, not the, not the negative side of things, meets a guy who she falls in love with, who says he's a salesman, uh, never tells her he's been married three times, has many kids. They get married, he goes off to war, uh, he comes back, she's pregnant, uh, he kills himself in an automobile accident, uh, coming back from Chicago to see her. So he, Billy is born. Uh, to a single mother. Mm -hmm. She then 
leaves Billy to be brought up by her parents because she can't stand to live in the same house with her parents, and goes off and marries someone else named Roger Clinton. Mm -hmm. And she does not know he's been married four times before. Does not know he's had many children. Does not know that in the divorce suit against him, he's been accused of spousal abuse. So this is a this is a sick situation. Okay. Right, right. She could have uh, uh, benefited from understanding due diligence. Yes. <laughs> yes. So then, you know, then what happens is that uh, they're married. They're flirtatious. They love to go out and gamble, etc. And. Mm -hmm. So it soon becomes evident that not only is Roger Clinton an alcoholic, he also beats his wife. Mm -hmm. And Billy Clinton is the one who rescues his mother from being beaten on many occasions mm -hmm. by his stepfather. Now, one of the things we learn from the literature on children of alcoholics is that, you know, a, a nine-year-old boy is going to feel as though somehow it's his responsibility right. to make things right. Yeah. right. So he sets out to be kind of be the family hero who's going to rescue the situation. Mm -hmm. And he, from that point forward, he aspires to be the best, most popular person in his class, uh, to be liked by everybody, uh, gets nominated by the American Legion Boys, uh, Boys Nation group in Arkansas as their candidate for U.S. Senator, lopes to the front of the line in Washington, D.C. when they go there for their convention so he can have his picture taken with Jack Kennedy. Basically sets his aspirations at the very top. Mm -hmm. From age 15, 16 on, wants to become President of the United States, wants to become Attorney General of, uh, of, of Arkansas, then Governor, then President. Goes to Georgetown, not Arkansas. Goes to Oxford is on a Rhodes Scholarship. Comes back, goes to Yale Law School, not Arkansas Law School. But he's someone who still doesn't have a core cannot develop a personal relationship of, of duration with a, a, a partner, uh, is already known for his one-night stands, his inability to make a commitment. Uh, and then he goes to Yale Law School and meets Hillary. Okay. Who is Hillary? Theoretically, she's a person who grows up, grows up in an idyllic suburban suburb, uh, Chicago suburb. A Republican uh, suburb. A Republican <laughs> suburb, uh, with no blacks, no Jews, no Spans, right. no Hispanics. Um, her father's a Goldwater Republican. Um, and theoretically, she has this great, you know, wonderful childhood. Except that it's not wonderful. Uh, her mother was born to a 15-year-old mother and a 17-year-old father. Her mother's name is Dorothy. In California. At age 8, they basically abandon her. They put her on a train with her 3-year-old brother, go back to Chicago to live with her grandparents, who mistreat her. And she goes to work uh, for a lace curtain maker, and that's Hugh Rodham. And Hugh Rodham marries her. Hugh Rodham has gone to college, but he's a, a, a very much of a different kind of person. He doesn't, he's not part of a corporate world. He's a single owner, single manufacturer, um, who is basically his own person and doesn't have much to do socially with anybody. Uh, and is verbally abusive toward his wife. Always says, who put those ideas in your smart-ass pants, etc." And, you know, with uh, if a child leaves the top of a toothpaste tube off uh, in the bathroom sink, he doesn't put it back on, he throws it out the window into the snow, 
and has the child go find it. This is not a nice person. No. Uh, and yet her mother is such a strong presence. Her mother teaches her to stand up for herself, teaches her to be someone who believes in the social gospel, right. Methodist Youth Fellowship, uh, someone who wants her to go to a good college like Wellesley, a feminist institution. Uh, and above all, teaches her the lesson that the one thing you never, ever, ever want to let yourself do is to put your children at risk. Divorce is a no-no. Don't even think about it. Uh, you need to protect your children. So, that's why she and Hugh remain married all those years. Uh, but her mother is pivotal, and Hillary never forgets that lesson. Bill and Hillary meet at Yale. They kind of meet on different... There are two stories of how they meet. One is that they stare each other across the library, and uh, she finally comes and says, look, if we're going to look at each other this hard, let's at least know who each other is. Uh, and then they become a couple. The other story, which I like better, is that uh, Bill was fascinated by her, who, by the way, is the opposite of his mother, uh, never wears makeup, has right, Coca-Cola-sized right, right. glasses, doesn't give a damn about clothes. And her hair. Okay, and, uh, and her hair. Okay. Um, but the other story is that Bill is fascinated by her, accompanies her to registration, even though he's already registered. Then they go off and go into the Yale Art Museum and see a Rothko exhibit, and then they kind of become very, have an intimate conversation. And she's got a boyfriend in Vermont. Um, he calls her the next day and she says she's sick, she's got a terrible cold, and he brings her chicken soup. Okay? That story, that story I like that. Uh, but whichever the story is, they become a couple. They fall in love, but they fight all the time. They're totally different from each other. Right. Uh, she is focused, structured, disciplined, He's all over the place. Moral compass. Moral compass, totally. That bubble in the middle of the parallelogram. You know? yep. uh, she never loses it. Bill is all over the place. He doesn't go to class the first three months at Yale because uh, he's working a political campaign. Uh, but they somehow complement each other. You know, she brings focus and structure, and he brings emotion and uh, outreach. And uh, they, they become this interesting couple who are partners who fight all the time but also uh, make each other better right. and that's the context in which they end up both going to Arkansas and eventually getting married uh, with her taking the risk that they can do more as a couple than they can individually right and so how did their relationship dynamics impact the campaign the, did Bill know up front that she had aspirations to be a yes. co-president yes uh, well I think she, I think before we get there, I think mean, he knew all along that she expected to be a partner, not simply in the marriage, but also in the sharing of power and political um, deliberation. Right. So when he is elected uh, governor, uh, she's very much a part of that campaign. And the interesting thing about his first two years as governor is the youngest governor in the country. Mm -hmm. um, that first two years, in some ways, is a mirror image of the chaos and disorganization of the first two years in the White House. Uh, two of her best friends are on his staff. Two of his best friends are on his staff. They fight all the time. There's no, there's no organization. There's no focus. Right. Bill's all the time on the road, meeting people, trying to make new friends, etc. Doesn't have an organized agenda. Makes the mistake of 
making his major domestic initiative to repair the roads of Arkansas, right. which desperately need repairing, but does so by raising taxes based upon the weight of a motor vehicle. Well, you know, poor people have older cars which are heavier. Exactly. And they don't like that. So he didn't think it through. He didn't think it through. And then Jimmy Carr does him, does him the disfavor of uh, sending 35,000 Cuban refugees to live in Arkansas. And so suddenly, Bill goes down. Uh, and he's totally depressed, totally disconsolate. And that's the first time Hillary steps in and saves his life. She basically takes over. She streamlines the campaign. She brings in Betsy Wright, her friend from uh, uh, Texas, as chief of staff. Uh, she brings in Dick Morris uh, as a political guru who's going to create strategy. She organizes the campaign, and she streamlines it. She gives it focus, and he gets reelected with 58% of the vote. In 1982, he's in office then for 10 years. In return, he makes her puts her in charge of his major domestic reform, which is education reform. She becomes the head of the task force of education in Arkansas, does a superb job, has hearings all over the state. It, too, is a model for what she does with health care. Right. Hearings everywhere, task force, the whole schmear. Uh, and she's successful. Uh, and all the way through this, she's a pivotal figure. Uh, and that sets the pattern for what's going to continue, except that She's all along aware of the fact that he has the womanizing problem. Right. Uh, and it becomes a very important part of their ongoing relationship. Only Hillary's response is not so much to get mad at Bill as to try to be proactive and keep it from getting out of control. Mm -hmm. So when she finds out about these five women who are going to make allegations against Bill when he's governor, what's she do? She goes up and digs up dirt on those women. Uh, so they can be silenced. Right. Um, he's going to run for president in 1988. Uh, and Betsy Wright goes to see him and says, you know, if you're going to do this, you've got to be aware of the fact that this womanizing is going to become an issue. And I know about 30 women at least. And then he says, well, he adds about 15 to that list. <clears throat> and uh, so he doesn't run. Bill falls in love with another woman, um, but Hillary will not give him a divorce, going back to what her mother said to him. And they go into marital therapy, and uh, things change, they become close together again, and they're ready to run for president as a team. And uh, she's ready to do her part to protect him. So in the summer of 91, they go and have breakfast with a Washington correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor who has a regular breakfast for reporters to meet political figures. And they go in there, and they, Bill and Hillary, raise the issue of womanizing. And Hillary... Proactively. Proactively. And Hillary says, you know, we've been through a lot of rough times together, but we love each other, we believe in each other, and we're going to be together for a long, long time. Reporters are totally impressed. Little does she know that she's just given a dress rehearsal the speech she's going to make nine months later when Jennifer Flowers comes out and says she's had a 12-year affair with Bill Clinton 
and then they go on 60 minutes and basically she does the same speech and she rescues him from plummeting down the bottom of the poles brings him back up and it's at that context that she saves his presidential candidacy and he starts talking to her talking about her as being co-president and uh, two for the price of one so amazing so you know I, I hadn't really remembered, and perhaps it's because of the things that were going on in my life at the time, because I was working for American Airlines, I was managing director of Latin America, so I was I was gone a lot. I was outside of the country right. while a lot of that was going on. And so I, I didn't really remember the co-presidency mm -hmm. uh, aspect of mm -hmm. this. Now, it makes total sense knowing mm -hmm. her and seeing her now, right. and in retrospect, uh, you know, applying all of that. Um, but what, what's your theory of why she continually rescued Bill? Because, uh, you know, it, it had to have some role. Uh, you've mentioned her mother and, and not leaving him. But it's more than that. It's yeah, it got to be self-interest, self-protection. It's, it's functional. It's not dysfunctional. It's, uh -huh. uh, essentially, every time she rescues him, she benefits. She gains power. She gains territory. She gains leverage. She also gets more affection. She gets more respect. He's nicer to her. Whenever he screws up uh, and she comes to his rescue, they become much more visibly and openly affectionate with each other. But he hands over more and more power yes. to her yes. with each incident. Yes. So, you know, it's a, in some respects, it's a... Uh, the word enabling can be misinterpreted, but uh, her rescuing him enables her to have a great deal more authority. Right, and it's the first time I've ever heard the assessment of her of that being functional mm -hmm. as opposed to being dysfunctional. Yes. From the outside, you would think that it's terribly dysfunctional. Yes, yes. But and then, of course, he's going to continue to, to mm -hmm. do that behavior. Yep. So let's jump out of the White House yes. and, and to their life uh, post-presidency. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about what happened. Well, I think that one of the things that happens is that the Lewinsky affair ultimately liberates Hillary to become the person she was before she met Bill. Uh, In what way? It basically, it basically gives her the authority to be her own independent person. Again. Uh, the very same time that she is making the decision as to whether to stand by Bill during the Lewinsky scandal, she is being approached by the leaders of the Democratic Party in New York to run for U.S. Senate in New York. These two things are happening at the same time. In her book, Hillary says, the two most difficult decisions in my life were whether to run for the Senate of New York and whether to stay married to Bill. I say they were not two decisions, they were right. one decision. Right. And um, what she does then is to, you know, when she was at Wellesley and when she was at Yale, she was a reformer, she had this moral compass, but she was also a coalition builder. She tried to achieve consensus. She did not alienate authority. She never attacked the president of Wellesley. She never attacked the dean of the law school at Yale. And she now goes on these listening tours. She wants to listen to what the constituents of New York have on their mind. When she's elected to the Senate, she doesn't become a partisan 
polarizing Democrat. She becomes a best friend to John McCain and Lindsey Graham. You know, I mean, her whole approach is that of the consensus centrist. Um, and she does the same thing as Secretary of State. I mean, she becomes a consensus builder uh, who always has had incredible loyalty from her staff, but also has a really strong coalition of people from different backgrounds willing to support her. And that's really what she has going for her right now. And why I think if she were uh, nominated in 2016, which I think she will be, why she would go into that election not as a polarizing partisan figure, but as a consensus centrist figure. Well, I think a lot depends clearly on what she does now. Yes, uh, yes. You know, in leaving her role as Secretary right. of State. One of my favorite parts of your book was at the end when you talked about all of the what-ifs. Mm -hmm. And that was that was fascinating because you don't think about the nuances right. of, of what all of those mm -hmm. things could have yes. uh, brought about. <clears throat> so uh, clearly Bill Clinton thought that that next path, so Senate back to mm -hmm. the White House, was where they were going. And yes. then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes Barack Obama. Yes. And so what do you think happened in their relationship during that time? That Bill and Hillary's? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, he was very, I think, almost out of control during that campaign. I think he... Uh, Took it as a personal insult that uh, Obama was doing as well as he was, and he made a whole bunch of mistakes. Bill Clinton did. I mean, he never should have attacked Obama, comparing him to Jesse Jackson, suggesting he was a race candidate. I mean, you know, a race candidate does not win Iowa, where three percent of the people are black. It's just not the way it happens. Um, but I think that he understood that that was a mistake, and I think in some respects what he's tried to do in the last year is to uh, recognize that Hillary's chance of success is so much greater if she's succeeding a second-term Democrat, because you know, we may disagree about what's going on with the economy, but I think the economy is going to be on its way back, whoever's president. And if Romney were president, he'd get all the credit for that. Right. And she'd be very difficult, very difficult for Hillary exactly. to beat him. Exactly. So Clinton makes the totally logical conclusion that if Hillary is going to be elected president, Obama has to be reelected. Mm -hmm. And Clinton makes the case that Obama cannot make for himself. Right. And goes to the convention and tells the entire country, "Look at the arithmetic. Okay, why can Hillary, why can Bill Clinton do this?" Because he produced 22 million jobs when he was president, and a budget surplus. Mm -hmm. He has credibility. He can make that allegation. Exactly. Obama can. So is she stronger with him now? Yeah. I think Does they he have. Her I think that he has helped her chances. I think he paved the way for her nomination. Helped pave the way with his speech and his, and his campaign. I think that they are probably at a place where. <laughs> The relationship is stable. They don't see, they don't see each other that much. Um, <laughs> that can help. I think that can help. I think that uh, I would not be at all surprised if they if if she were elected president. If he spent half his time in New York, I think that would actually be good. Uh, it's a fascinating story. 
<laughs> Definitely. So what's next for you? Well, you, I... You've retired from your... your well, uh, I, I haven't, I haven't. I, I actually still teach half-time. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, I'm doing a lot of interesting stuff with that. But uh, we have a very big book project that uh, we've been working on for a number of years. It goes back to my work on oral history and race. Mm-hmm. And we have done at Duke... 1,350 interviews with uh, African-Americans who lived in 11 southern states during segregation. And we're going to write a book about a new look at Jim Crow, which will do a lot more to focus on black community building and black agency and black resistance and do a little bit less with the polarized prototype of total whites and domination and total black submission. So that's a, that's a big project. So uh, I heard it described as revisionist history. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, excellent. History needs to be revised. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, it has been terrific, just fascinating. I found the, the book uh, really engaging. I love your writing style. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's storytelling at its finest, especially because you know that you're dealing with truth and uh, helping to, to divine that truth in a way uh, that people can really embrace it. Thank you for saying that. Well, as, as a uh, staunch conservative to love this book, <laughs> I, I think that could just be your highest praise. <laughs> well, I know you've got a panel that you need yes. to go, and uh, you know I have just so enjoyed the book fair. Uh, this was my first, Good. but hopefully not my last. You've been listening to The Game Changer, Ideas, inspiration, innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.